Welcome to The Nine Line, your news and information source for healthcare-related issues impacting Southern Nevada veterans, and a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. And now, here's your hosts, John Archiquette and Joshua Gray. Hi, welcome to the Nine Line Podcast, your VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System's resource for veteran news and information regarding healthcare. I'm your host, John Argiquette, and joining me is my co-host, Joshua Gray. As always, how you doing? As always, I'm yeah. doing great. You know, getting ready for Thanksgiving. And, yeah, uh, holidays are here. Yeah, it's a little different Thanksgiving than most years, Bit but of a tough uh, situation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so today's podcast, of course, uh, we're going to talk about coronavirus and COVID nineteen because. You know, while it's something we've touched on in most of our podcasts so far, um, obviously the, the recent surge has necessitated us to go back and talk about that. And it's a great excuse for us to have uh, two of our original guests here. We have uh, Dr. Myron Kung and Dr. Jason Daisley. Welcome, gentlemen. Welcome. Thank you. Appreciate Thank you very much for having us. So for everyone who's who's been paying attention to the news in the last few weeks, you know, it's been a large resurgence in, uh, in cases of coronavirus, uh, both you know, globally within the United States and also here in Nevada. And while some things may have uh, have changed, a lot of the same circumstances, a lot of the same, you know, messages we need to reiterate here. But what are we seeing locally within our VA Southern Nevada healthcare system as far as our numbers? Yeah, so right now we're seeing an average of approximately 15, 10 to 15 really, um, so it's definitely less than what we saw back in July, but that's definitely there's definitely a reason for that. And that is at least we have some treatments and we have some timings. We know a little bit more about how the disease works and uh, what timing, what approach to use overall with the different phases of the disease itself. So that's helped us to allow us to treat a little bit better is still the treatments are modest, but at least we're seeing that they're getting some, having some improvement. Uh, over a timeline that's much better than before when we didn't know as much about it. So from a treatment standpoint, mm-hmm. you know, we've learned a lot and you guys are, you guys are seeing marked improvement, but the number of cases that we're seeing, um, it, it still continues to grow, correct? Oh, yes, absolutely. So we're talking not only just community-wide, but nationally and globally, we're seeing in most places, we're seeing a steady growth. And we're still seeing that trickle in become more of a flow each day of new patients that are coming in. So each day when we review the number of, of cases, we're still seeing that regular influx each day without any hesitation every day. So... You know, here in in Nevada, the governor just recently reinstituted a lot of the restrictions that we had seen earlier in the year to kind of try to stave off the the spread. And uh, you know, our our hospital here, we've we've maintained having social distancing, physical distancing. We've maintained having a, a masking policy. So, you know, our policies aren't changing. But what what are you seeing community wide that needs to be done to kind of stem this spread? Yeah, I think it's really just a redoubling of the really the diligence of vigilance in our community as far as uh, allowing people to know, because I get the question a lot, is this really as bad as they say it is? And I think they need to know that absolutely it is, is nobody's exaggerating this. And I think if we can uh, come to some consensus and unify uh, with this uh, understanding that it is as bad as we think it is, especially right before the holidays where people want to be with family, they want to relax a little bit, we have to maintain the same sort of diligence. You know, you mentioned, you know, when you talk to people and they ask you, is it as bad 
as as everybody says it is. Uh, what's your for either of you? What's what's your take when somebody just comes up and says it isn't as bad as you say it is? So it is hard for us in general, I think, to judge risk and to even have conception of the number. I mean, we're you know throwing out numbers, hundreds of thousands of deaths, millions of people who are positive across the nation, millions across the world. And th- those numbers are just hard to wrestle with. And because of that, it's really hard to get a good grasp of what I think is going on. What we try to impress upon people is that we actually see these patients. And I can usually relate a story that everybody else can also relate to, whether we're treating our coworkers, our teammates, people we see every day, or whether we're treating family members. And I think that starts to um, bring home the severity and puts it in a context, I think, that people can understand. Because if I said, oh, we have 2,000 cases per day in Nevada, is that a lot? Is that a little? It's really difficult to get your head around these epidemiologic numbers. But if you can bring the story home on a more personal level, then I think people can start to empathize and really understand what we wrestle with. And the other thing that I think Dr. Daisley and I do is we practice what we preach and we try to live the lifestyle that we are trying to get everybody in to. It is certainly hard work and we are certainly making significant amounts of sacrifices. So I can empathize with anybody who feels, you know, that they're under a difficult situation. We certainly feel that fatigue also. You know, going back to what you were talking about with the, the holiday season coming up, you know, as much as the CDC is kind of impressed upon people that, you know, maybe stay home with this holiday season, you know, do things virtually, have your Zoom family dinner together. Um, there's still estimated 10 million people are expected to be traveling this week alone throughout the United States. Uh, short of telling people just to stay home, what more can we impress upon them? You know, what kind of measures can they take to try to keep safe? You know, I think what is important to understand is that we are human creatures and social creatures. So I certainly understand the need to be with other people, especially since we've been wrestling with this pandemic for so long, going on six, seven months now. But we can do things to lessen the spread. And I think when people understand that every little step we take contributes And every risk that we take also contributes to the spread. So every effort does have an appreciable effect. And I don't want people to get to the point where they just throw their hands up. You know, we are fatigued, of course, and we are tired of this. But throw their hands up and say, oh, there's nothing we can do. Of course we can do something. A good example for um, discussion is opening of the schools. We know that even though kids do not get the disease severely and they are not super spreaders, that the prevalence, in other words, how much COVID we see in school is reflected in the community. Okay, So every time we do something, we open something up, the spread gets a little bit worse. Every time we take good, appropriate risk mitigation techniques, the spread gets a little bit less. And so we can pull all of these things together. In other words, be smart about it and do this in a way that we take care of not only our teammates, but our loved ones. And I think that that is a message that is a lot more tolerable uh, to people instead of just saying, no, you can't travel, you can't see anybody. 
There was, uh, you know, over the summer when we started to open things back up as far as, you know, commerce and things like that, there were a lot of mitigation things that you could do that made it very easy to still be social, but then also still live your life. You know, you could eat outside uh, at restaurants, you could go to parks and you could remain socially distanced just within your household. Now with with the winter here, you know, eating outside isn't exactly a very comfortable uh, prospect. You know, I just got back from lunch and it's 61 degrees outside and I, I ate inside because I didn't want to go outside. Um, so what are some of those things that people can do maybe to stay not cooped up, but also in a manner where they're being safe? Yeah, I think there's a few of those. I mean, um, we want to shop, you know, there's Black Friday, there's always, you know, those indoor sort of like opportunities to shop online. They've made the Macy's Day Parade something that you can watch on your television. And, and that's, I think, a really good way to do it. If you want to look at different uh, small risk versus moderate risk versus high risk, there's different things that can be done that outdoors activities that you could do with the families, you can have those heaters outside and actually bring to the, the family together. That's moderate risk still. But it is something that you could do if you want to just maintain yourself at a low risk. That's where you try to do the best you can to stay within your indoors with your own family only and then do virtual activity as far as talking to family. And um, the other thing that I thought was a really good idea that the CDC brought out was the recipes that you like to use in your own family. You can make those recipes and then deliver them to family members. And I thought that was an interesting way to, to share something from home without actually putting maybe an older family member at risk. And I think that's a good way to put it older, someone who's more mature and more, more wise than us, but maybe at more risk than us. So we want to make sure that they're safe too. And I think, you know, besides masking, which is an, an absolute, uh, there is a lot of good science for that. And we do that here on our own. Uh, we are, you can hear on our voices right now mm -hmm. that we're masking this podcast. So that's very important. But you know, when Dr. Daisley mentions uh, low, medium, and high risk, we are not trying to say everything on that high risk you can't do. What we are trying to convey when we're saying low, medium, and high risk is if you have to do something, think about what the risk is and whether it is worth it to do. For the low risk stuff, yeah, we can go outside, have fun, say distance, go to the park, that's not, that kind of thing. Transmission outside is probably very low. But going shopping or something like that, or visiting a family member, which is higher risk, well, the need to do so also needs to be very high. In other words, I'm not very frivolous in terms of high risk activities, but it is something absolute. I need to go into a patient's room because the patient is very, very sick and I'm exposing myself to COVID. Yes, that's high risk, but that is a very necessary activity. So that's how I think we should start to budget. We're not saying, no, you cannot travel. No, you cannot do anything high risk. We're just saying, listen, this is very risky. So if you are going to do it, please be sure that the reason that you do so is very, very important. Are, are there any like guides or, or handouts or anything that kind of list like what a matrix like that would look like? Yes, absolutely. So there are a number of links, uh, links that we can provide, you know, in the show notes after this. And it's uh, different depending on where you live. So it does get a little bit complicated. But we can group things into just broad categories. Outdoors is safer. 
Indoors is a little bit less safe. Indoors without distancing is the least safe. So that's why Governor Sisolak, for example, mandated a minimum or excuse me, a maximum of 25% occupancy because that's the highest risk activity and therefore you need to limit the number of interactions in that particular activity. We know that we've heard a lot of speculation on, on uh, potential vaccines, and we'll talk a little bit about more about that uh, later in the show. But do you think that some of the, the lackadaisical attitude that we've seen from people is tied to, you know, well, we're, we almost have a vaccine, so we'll be fine soon? I think that's a, a huge issue where people are thinking, yeah, there's definitely light at the end of the tunnel and they want to take a lantern back where they are and bring light along the way. And in reality, we have to think about, yeah, we still have to stay vigilant even during this time when we're waiting for the vaccine because we don't have an idea of when we're actually going to get it. And so that's a problem. And we ha- actually don't have any scientific data to back it up either. And so we're still waiting on that so we can be transparent with the public and also be consistent with them on the information we're giving. Because as we research these things, it's important for us to trust, but to also verify. And so for us, we need to really research this stuff and really understand what it is that we're sharing with people before we go out and actually make that visible to them. So how do you impress upon people that, yes, you see the light at the end of the tunnel, but you don't want to be so focused on that that you don't see the pit right at your feet? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and that's the truth. We have to be right there by their side. We have to be holding their hand along the way so that they can understand the challenges that are yet you know, in front of us, because we don't, it's really going to be till towards the end of next year before we're really able to vaccinate everybody. That's the estimation. We don't have any figures or ideas of when we'll really make sure that everybody is safe. I think that that's important. If we say, uh, give a timeline, in other words, if it's not immediate, we're going to get the vaccine, then we understand that we still have to do uh, our very best in order to prevent the spread. And the other thing is that the way it's been presented to me too, is that we are so close to the Calvary arriving, as Dr. Fauci had said, Mm -hmm. that it would be terrible for us to let go. It's so close to the finish line. And so we have to understand that, um, you know, if we do our very best from now until when the vaccine gets fully distributed, it will help us in the long run. And I want people to just take that with them, to not lose hope. We're going to Take a quick break, and we'll be back with Dr. Kong and Dr. Daisley. You're listening to The Nine Line, a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. We'll be back with more right after this. I'm United States Surgeon General Jerome Adams, America's doctor. And all across our nation, we've taken steps together to slow the spread of coronavirus. Now we must continue to take personal responsibility to protect ourselves and our loved ones. Because even though not all of us risk a severe case of coronavirus, we all risk getting it and spreading it to others, maybe without even realizing that we're sick. So if we want to get back to school, back to work, back to worship, and back to overall health, there are things our country needs to do. We need to follow state and local guidelines, take extra precautions if at higher risk, wash our hands frequently, stay six feet from others when we can, And when we can't stay six feet from others, please, I'm begging you, wear a face covering. These small actions will make a big difference. So I'm asking you to say it with me, America. Coronavirus stops with me. You can learn more at coronavirus.gov. Produced by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services at taxpayer expense. I didn't want to talk. 
She just sat with me. That was all I really needed. We got back. One day he called me out of the blue. And it's comforting to know that I always can count on him to have my back. She called me from time to time. I really didn't think I needed any help. It took me from being really depressed to feeling like somebody cared to give me some hope. Just that one text. Be there. Your call. Your presence. Your words. Your support. Be there and help save a life. Learn more about preventing suicide at VeteransCrisisLine.net. Welcome back to The Nine Line, Southern Nevada's source for veteran-related healthcare news and information. Here's your hosts, John Archiquette and Joshua Gray. Welcome back to The Nine Line Podcast. I'm your host, John Archiquette. With me is my co-host, Joshua Gray, as always. and As always. Our uh, returning guests, we have Dr. Jason Daisley and Dr. Myron Kung. They are our infectious disease and pulmonary experts here at VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. Gentlemen, the uh, the big thing on everyone's mind with coronavirus right now is the vaccine. Uh, we've heard, you know, over the last couple of weeks, we've heard different companies releasing uh, their, you know, information on their vaccine of different levels of efficacy and, you know, different periods of time and challenges. But it's brought a lot of hope to a lot of people, I think. And what is the VA doing as far as, uh, you know, what kind of plans do we have in place for the rollout of this? Yeah, so they've already begun with this, and we started several weeks ago, actually, with a tabletop exercise so we can talk about exactly what this is all going to entail, what are the details we're missing, discuss how each person is going to play a role, you know, position-wise in order to make sure that this is a success, you know, with the, you know, the logistic challenges that come along with the vaccine. Um, And then at that point, we have to also look at afterwards is um, just really looking at the ability that we have to then take this task force that we have, work together with them and uh, plan for the details of how we're going to get the the vaccine here. And then from there, you know, all the plans that we've already made with the previous vaccines we've done have worked really well. And so that's really something that we have on our side is that we've had many other, you know, large populations that have come in with distancing and have been able to uh, offer the vaccine to people and then had a good success rate as far as the numbers that are coming in at any given time. And the thing about that is, is we've had, we've already had basically a dry run of, of this whole exercise because that's why we do our, our point of dispensing exercise every year with the flu shot. Um, you know, it's it's always been intended as a, a practice for a pandemic scenario should one occur. And well, now here we are. So, you know, we, it's, it's kind of a good thing that we do that because now we're, we're used to the, the step-by-step thing that you have, things you have to do to give a mass amount of inoculations in a very short amount of time. That's exactly right. I mean, we are a federal institution and we couple with the Department of Defense. And it's important to say that this is not our first pandemic that we've dealt with, or, nor is this our first biologic um, uh, emergency that we've dealt with. So we have the infrastructure in place to rapidly dispense the vaccine to all the people who need it uh, as quickly and as safely as possible. And I do want to emphasize that this will be safe as possible as well. That is something that both Dr. Ndaisley and I, as well as the entire VA system, looks at. Well, I have a couple of questions for you guys regarding the, the vaccine or you know some of the details around it, because a lot of veterans out there are, are hearing mixed information from people. So Best, uh, best we get some of those those easy questions, you know, right off the bat. 
first of all, if someone's already had COVID-19, can they still be vaccinated for it? Absolutely. Yeah. Somebody who's already had it, we don't really know how much protection they still have, if any, really. And so we feel like the vaccination is still going to be very vital to them being able to be in the community a little safer than they would have before with some protection. We, again, don't know how much protection the vaccine will also provide either, but we know it's going to be better than what we have now. And as we continue to get more information regarding the vaccines and some of the trials have been doing as they continue ongoing trials, that's going to give us more of that um, ability to answer that question. And the question that I get all the time is, will you get the vaccine? Will I get the vaccine? And at this point, I would say, I'm gonna wait till we get some more data. Okay. How about you, Dr. Khan? So I trust the people who have looked at this information. I know them, I know their pedigree, I know how they were educated, I know their history, and I know that they care very, very much about their patients. I trust that they will review the information and if it is safe to give the vaccine, we will do so. Mm -hmm. Uh, From a more personal perspective, because Dr. Daisley and I deal with COVID every single day, it's a bit of a different situation. Mm -hmm. We have to provide healthcare and continued healthcare to all of our veterans and people in the community. So we're put under a certain different pressure Um, because we need to maintain operations. And so for me personally, I will be taking the vaccine because I know that this will let me do my job. One one thing that I've seen when it comes to um, a lot of folks in in the media and a lot of commentators and things like that talking about this very subject where they're talking about, well, are you going to get the vaccine or not? Their, Their marker has been well, what does Dr. Fauci say? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. if, yes. if Dr. Fauci says it's yes, safe, right. I'm going to get it. Right. Like, yeah. so uh, does does that? Uh, do you think that's a, a reliable thing for people to kind of use that as their as their criteria? I think it's helpful, but I think as we continue to get more information, we're going to see the transparency of it. We're going to see again that whole point that has come up for many many years is to trust because we have the FDA process, we have those that are involved in the process with NIH that understand where the data is coming from. They look at it on a daily basis. And so there is a lot of trust, but then also to verify. So to verify on our own, to have somebody to lean on, but then also make our own decision based on looking at it ourselves. You say that you know you want folks to look at the data and kind of make their own decisions. But you know it, one thing we've seen with coronavirus is people are going to look at the data and they're going to use that data to reinforce whatever they already thought. Like if you come into this thinking that the vaccine's not safe, you're going to go and find the data that's going to tell you the vaccine's not safe. So how do you how do you kind of wage that war then as a as an infectious disease expert if the if you look at it and feel that the the vaccine is absolutely safe, you know, and, you know, if there's indications that maybe you shouldn't get it, you know, like any vaccine. Um, But how do you go through there and and convince somebody that is maybe looking at the data and they're interpreting it wrong that they should get the vaccine when they feel they shouldn't? And what I'm saying, I'm not saying that we should just look at the data ourselves. If you're not in scientific and just say, oh, okay, that's what that means. We may not be able to interpret it if we're not scientific. But we can understand that the FDA is a good source of getting our information rather than going to some completely different source in the internet or some other 
feed from some uh, social media. I think it's important for us to know where the sources of information are coming from, like the peer review. The peer review are a group of scientists that are going to also take a look at it and decide based on their backgrounds. There's a lot of trust there, as Dr. Kung has mentioned. And it's important for us to know that that scientific data is going to be really important for them to review and then for them to give us a synopsis of what they think, whether it's safe or not. I think, you know, I, the way I use Dr. Fauci is I rely on his expertise, right? He's been through this before, so he can interpret the data. If I have any questions, we can certainly ask him, and I know a lot of people will. To answer your specific question, though, I approach, when patients come to me about the vaccine, I approach that the same way they would come to me about any other medical condition. There's never an absolute right or wrong. If somebody has lung cancer, do you go through chemo? Do you go through surgery? Do you just leave it alone? There's never a right answer. Now, what I can counsel is there are certain risks and benefits, and we need to talk about it with each individual patient. So if anybody does have questions, we certainly encourage them to come to podcasts like this or to the FDA where they synthesize all of the information together, or even ask their primary care physician, because Dr. Daisley and I are also responsible for educating our teammates in regards to the vaccine as it starts to come out. That way we can come together and make a decision that's right for the patient. Because it will be different from everybody uh, between patient to patient. And I do not want to be in the position to say, yes, you have to take the vaccine. I really want them to uh, them as in patients to have buy-in into their decision to understand why they are taking the vaccine and if they cannot get the vaccine, what they else they need to do. Because again, just because we have the vaccine does not mean that the pandemic is going to be over. Absolutely true. It's all a team effort between all of us, very interdisciplinary, and all of us can contribute in that effort to assist people to understand in a consistent way. Okay, so I'm a veteran, and, you know, say we're four or five, however many months down the road, and I make the decision I want to get the vaccine. So I get vaccinated. I'm aware that I'm not totally immune, but do I still keep wearing a mask? That's a very important and good question. And the answer is yes. We want people to keep their good habits. Just because the vaccine can help prevent getting the disease, number one, it's not 100% effective. In other words, there is still a chance that you still can get COVID and infection, even if you've been vaccinated. And here are the other important things to think about. And I really liked what Dr. Daisy said about the team approach. We do not know, for example, if you take the vaccine, can you still transmit even though you don't get infected? And the answer may be yes. So we still want to do what's right for the community, what's right for our fellow persons and teammates to do the important things about preventing the disease. The vaccine, just like masking, just like social distancing, is only a part of the puzzle, not you, the whole answer. And you mentioned transmissibility there, and that's mm-hmm. that's where they, you, you put the important part in here that wearing a mask isn't about you not getting sick, it's about you not giving it to other people. That's exactly right, right. and that's how I look at the vaccine too. Yes, of course, it protects me from getting the disease, but it also helps the community. In other words, I stop being a spreader of the disease. And that's one of the things that we're trying to do by giving the vaccine widely. 
And, and to John's question, I think it's kind of important to note that, you know, all of these vaccines that have been discussed, they're, they're two-dose regimens. That's correct. It's not like you go in to get the vaccine, they stick a needle in your arm, and, and two days later, you're, you're ready to rock and roll. That's right. right. You know, it's, it's two months after that first vaccine that, that from what I've read, that you, you would have the maximum amount of— The peak of, immunity. Right. You would have the peak immunity because it's a month— after the second shot when you get that that peak immunity, right? Absolutely. So. And again, we talk about the individuality. How people react to vaccines is going to be different too. So I may get the vaccine, and even though uh, the vaccine works for 95% of the people who get it, I may be that 5% where it doesn't work, and I'm still at risk for getting COVID and still at risk for transmitting COVID. So we're all in this together, and that's what I wanted to impress upon And I think it's audience. important just to know that there's like a difference between infection and disease. And there definitely could be those that still have infection. Like he mentioned, Dr. Kung very appropriately mentioned that there, there are those that will still have infection, and they'll still be able to spread, but they won't have disease. It's just going to decrease their ability to have the disease themselves. And I think that's an important thing to remember with this infection. So as we begin to, to roll out the vaccine, um, obviously there's not going to be enough available for every single person in the world right away. Uh, so we're going to have to kind of do a, a you know, triage approach to, to releasing it. Who are the people who are probably going to get access to the, the first doses? Right. What we are trying to do with the vaccine, especially a vaccine in limited supply, is to serve the greatest good. And right now, uh, high on the list are healthcare personnel who deal with uh, COVID directly, because that allows us to take uh, take care of as many people as possible while this pandemic is still ongoing. The second issue, especially for uh, veterans and patients, are those who are at highest risk for getting the disease and having severe effects. This way, the vaccine will help as many people um, and be as efficacious, as powerful as possible at the outset. As we start to get more vaccine, then we can certainly start to um, vaccinate more and more people, people who are at le less risk, people who are at less risk for getting severe disease. Uh, but it will be a tiered approach. I was very disappointed to find that even though I work in a hospital, podcast host is not at the front of the line. Really? Yeah. yeah. Podcast host is not essential? No, <laughs> apparently not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you guys were at the front line. <laughs> um, you know, what kind of changes have you guys seen? You know, obviously, once this is over, there's going to be certain things that are, are obviously going to stay around, you know, within our uh, our practices, you know, or increased telehealth and things like that. But what kind of lessons do you think that we can all take from from this experience? I think one for me is just staying informed all the time. And I think as a public staying informed and kind of unifying for the greater good. I think that is something that we can definitely take from this kind of understanding that sometimes we would want to maybe overcome our self-interest in order to help other people that might be more vulnerable or more at risk than we are. I think that's a huge thing. So those are a few of the things that I would think that I would take from this for my own life that mm -hmm. would be important and being responsible, being an example to others. Those are other things that I think that I we can sort of live definitely more and apply those things more than just saying it, we're actually doing it. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think this is a communal disease and we're all in this together. We found that this disease does not spare by race, by sex, by even geography, that it affects everyone. Uh, even, um, you know, our president, for example, did contract the disease. So we are all in this together. And the medicine that we do is also uh, a communal approach, a group approach, rather than just individual, as we used to think about it before. When you talk about, you know, vaccines like the polio vaccine, mm -hmm. that, that was a silver bullet that essentially eradicated the disease off of the face of the planet. Uh, are we talking about that kind of a vaccine or are we talking about something where um, you're going to have to get yearly boosters because it mutates a little bit, kind of like the flu, you know, the flu mutates every year, which is why you need uh, you need a, a, a new vaccine every single year. Um, what what are we looking at as far as how this is going to what, you know, five years down the road, are we still going to be getting coronavirus vaccines possibly? We, mm -hmm. Go ahead. We don't know the answer to that question. We don't know if the vaccine is going to work for three months, six months, 12 months. We don't know whether the uh, virus will mutate and it already has. What we do know is that, again, the vaccine is only a small component. The other things that we've learned, the masking, the distancing, how to take good care of ourselves, is, I think, the more important lesson. I don't think uh, that this will be the silver bullet. Rarely does that happen in medicine where you get one answer and it completely cures the disease. Medicine is an evolving uh, uh, um, issue and understanding. And we have changed so much in the few months that we've dealt with COVID. And I think that this is going to be how we treat this particular pandemic. And certainly this is not going to be the last one that we see. And I think that's well said overall. There's still going to be a portion of our community we hope will be a small portion of those that won't get the vaccine. And so we're really hoping overall that we can help the majority of those to get it so it will work appropriately. And so we can see that the risks will be mitigated, especially with those that work on the front line or work with those that have COVID-19 or with those that have just vulnerable individuals in their family that might be more mature or wise than they are, but are definitely at more risk. You know, and that's always that's, that's the, the herd immunity concept that, you know, you can go unvaccinated if enough people go vaccinated with something. Um, you know, and the, the term herd immunity has kind yeah. of gotten uh, kind of a, a, a reputation over the last couple of months. Um, but is there going to be a point where um, as people are getting vaccinated that it's safe to come out of some of these, you know, wearing a mask everywhere? Or is that going to be, you know, something that's forever going for? Well, maybe not forever, but, you know, until we can verify that, hey, 90 percent of the population has been vaccinated. Now you can take masks off. Yeah, it's a good, another good question of something that we don't uh, really know. We're not really clear. We know eventually we're going to see a lot of uh, normalization at some point. But what will our normal look like? How often will those vaccines be required? Will we need to continue to mask? And it wouldn't be a bad idea just to continue these things for some time as we continue to, to listen to some of those scientists bring out information, uh, information from people that we trust. So then, then we can say, OK, now we're going to have less death overall. We're not going to have to talk about rationing care like what they're talking about in different healthcare system. It's just a scary thought of rationing care. And also this long-term COVID issue where individuals are having to deal with this over the long course. You know, we've been in this for about 10 months now and there's so many people that still have symptoms. Our index case 
here at, well, in Nevada as a whole, he still has symptoms. And it's unfortunate we're trying to, to look at new treatments, new ways, new designs in order to treat him, but we don't have a good answer about that either. And so if we just leave it to herd immunity, we're gonna deal with lots more death and definitely a lots more of those long-term COVID-19 patients. It's a multi-organ inflammatory disease for them. One thing I've noticed is we've kind of had this this conversation over the last half hour is a lot of, and it's okay to say this, like, we don't know. Like, yeah. we're not sure how this is going. And, and a lot of that is a function of trying to do all of this on the fly, right? Things that normally take two or three years to learn about a disease, we're trying to learn in six months. How How challenging does that make what you're both trying to do on a daily basis where you've got maybe half of the directions, right? To you, you've got half a map, and you're trying to find a place that may be on the map. What what's that like day to day working in that environment? I think it is just as frustrating for us practicing the medicine as it is for the public to hear about it and hear conflicting things. I know frequently what gets brought up, for example, is in the very beginning of this in February, you said no masking except for healthcare personnel, and all of a sudden it turned to masking. Um, you know, this is medicine compressed into six months. Uh, what I had learned in residency, and Dr. Daisley too, was different than what we learned at the end of residency, which is different than what the residents are learning now. So as we come to a greater understanding, get more information, certainly our understanding evolves. I understand the frustration with that. That is part and parcel of how we do medicine. What I ask people who are listening to this podcast understand is that even though we may change uh, our guidance and uh, what we say based on new information, it is not because we are wish-washy or we're trying to deceive the public. As we learn, we are being as forthright as we possibly can. That's probably even more frustrating than the new information is when a patient says, well, you said this a month ago and now I don't trust you and I have to earn back that trust. That is that hurts me more as a physician than even just dealing with a new disease, which is part and parcel of, you know, what we do in medicine. Right. And, you know, you were talking earlier about, you know, trusting the FDA. And there's a lot of people out there right now that, you know, because things have evolved and we've had sure. to change all of that messaging, they they feel like, well, I can't trust the, the FDA. And it's really important to build that trust back. With it them. certainly yeah. is. It certainly is. And to understand where the motivation is coming from. We as healthcare providers, we've taken an oath to do no harm to help our patients and to understand that, no, we don't have a political motivation or a financial motivation for any of the things that we say is as strictly what benefits the patient in front of me and the community at large. And I think that at least on and on my part and probably on Dr. Kanga, is a lot of this is the attitude we take in the whole scenario. It's like, did we sign up for this? Yes. And how adaptable can we be? And I think that's important for us to always take a look at how quickly can we lock and load? Can we flex to this? Can we take the information, verify, and understand that, yeah, we're just kind of all learning day to day. This is an evolution, but it's an, an evolution towards an objective. And I think we're getting closer to that objective. Well, we appreciate that, you know, as a veteran myself, I, it's great to know that we've got people who are, are qualified and, and flexible, uh, as you gentlemen, to, you know, to lead us in, the, in our fight against COVID. So uh, I want to thank both of you guys for, for being here today. Uh, this has been extremely enlightening, like always. And, um, you know, important message out there for everyone that this is a war, not just a battle. And, you know, we may have a light at the end of the tunnel. We may have a, uh, 
you know, potential weapon that we can use against this virus. But uh, until that point in time, we need to make sure that uh, we don't forget, you know, all the, the things that we've learned along the way. So thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Uh, all you veterans out there, hope you have a great Thanksgiving weekend and stay safe. You've been listening to The Nine Line, a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. For more information about what the VA is doing for Nevada's veterans, check out our official webpage at www.lasvegas.va.gov or follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash lasvegasva. Thanks for listening.